and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ellie. And me, Ben. And coming up today, for everyone listening, we are going to be talking about bees. Yeah, favourite of all wildlife gardeners, of course. Indeed. And we've both been reading Jean Vernon's book, The Secret Life of Garden Bees. And we're also going to be talking about our native plant of the week, which is the field scabious. Yeah, looking very good at the moment as well. But before we start all of that, we're going to talk about our sightings, things we've seen around gardens in the last six weeks or so. Yeah, you can start. Yes, I think I've seen more than you again. I don't know how you always see more than me because your prescription for your glasses is just crazy. <laughs> so. <laughs> yes, but I wear glasses, so maybe my vision is oh, better. That's true, yeah, I never wear mine. <laughs> Or I'm not working as hard as you. Who knows? Yeah, I've seen quite a lot of seven-spotted ladybirds, actually. A very common species in gardens, but worth mentioning. I feel like they've had a good year. Would you like to describe what they look like? Do they look like a normal red ladybird? They're a little red ladybird and they have seven spots. Well, there you are. That's easy. (laughs) That's easy. Fantastic for eating aphids in your garden. Yeah, of course. Wonderful species. But they will be looking for somewhere to overwinter soon as temperatures drop. And this is why it's really important to keep all those nooks and crannies and undisturbed locations in your garden for things like that to see through the cold months. I also have noticed robins. So this is the the common bird. They really are going for it at the moment. They're, they're known as being pretty territorial, but going into winter, they really fight off each other for the best food and location to, again, see through those cold months. Yeah, they're already establishing territories, aren't they? Yeah, I saw a, a scrap between three. It was quite vicious, actually. They are vicious. They are very vicious. Yeah, not as cute as everyone. Well, I always they say are. because they, you know, the, the singing seems quite sort of twee. Well, and no, these three it, were really, really screaming at each other. Well, exactly. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's like a war cry. Yeah, it really rather was. Rather than a song, isn't it? Yeah. I was wondering whether they were seeing off fledglings or anything like that to get them out of the, the, the territory, the family territory. I'm not sure. Yeah. Possibly. I, on the allotment, have seen a dock bug. It We've is- seen a lot of bugs, actually, recently. You've just reminded me with the dock bug. We saw um, the birch catkin bug. Yes, I did put a post out about this. Yeah, we opened up a bin, a garden bin, uh, which is under a birch, which and birches at the moment are just shedding so much seed. Just seed. Yeah, yeah just doing so, what they do well. Um, and they'd been dropping all this seed onto the uh, bin lid, and we opened it up, and there must have been 10,000 tiny little bugs. But they were in various stages in their life cycle. So the birch catkin bug goes through several instars, doesn't it? It goes yeah. through several stages until it becomes and the they're... adult, each slightly larger than the last. And each a slightly different colour as well. Yeah. And we saw all of them all together. It was really interesting. Yeah, I think when I asked the question on Twitter, I was like, what on earth is going on here, guys? Because it just looked like a little party. And I didn't realise at the time they were bugs. And lots of very helpful people stepped in and helped us with the identification of that. Go on to your big one. This, this is the good one. Technically, this is our client that spotted this. Lo- I, I don't know if we could sing the theme tune to this because it's probably copyrighted. <laughs> but let's do it. We could have three seconds of spider wasp, spider wasp. Tell does me what a spider, spider wasp, wasp does. does. Uh, yeah, don't sue us um, for singing full stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, or rather our clients, saw something called the spider wasp. And you think you've heard everything in nature, but it always comes up with more surprises. This is a wasp that hunts spiders. So turns the tables very much on uh, the usual scenario. 
Yeah, I think there's about 42 species in the UK. About 42. About 42.439 species in the UK. (laughs) Okay, there are 42 species in the UK. And yeah, they are in the Pompilidae family and the fascinating life cycle. It's the females that hunt down spiders. They actually have quite long legs and they're sort of black all over and they roam around the ground and through long grass hunting down spiders. They paralyze the spider. They then take that spider back to their nest, lay an egg on it, and then the hatching larvae will feed on that paralyzed spider. Ugh. Gruesome, horrible way to die, but really wonderful species to finally see. Yeah, we actually saw it dragging the spider along, didn't yeah, we? It yeah, it had prey and everything. Yeah. Brilliant. Going into our own garden, good news and bad news. Good news first, the spadgers, the house sparrows, are back well, with a vengeance. They cleared off really, about six, eight months ago. Yeah, like we that. were left with two bachelors, ago. that's what we kept saying, the lads. Yeah, and at the time we speculated either something had happened to the colony or the colony had broken up, which sometimes they do. If the colony gets to a certain size, they can break up and then go off to have their young elsewhere. And that's what we think has happened now, because now the winter's coming around, the colony has got back together and we have got more spadges in our garden than we've ever had. They are expensive. They are costing us a fortune (laughs) in seed. We have at least 20 house house sparrows, yeah, and they all just live in the big pyrocanthra at the back of our garden. Come in and, uh, yeah, take all our seed and make a hilarious mess everywhere. (laughs) But we absolutely love them. But the bad news, well, they're kind of connected. We grow sunflowers... And we've got a sort of a mini field of sunflowers um, that we grow for the seed and we cut off the seed heads to put on the bird table. But the git is back. (laughs) Git, aka the squirrel. Yeah. (laughs) We think it keeps a diary and it knows exactly the month to come into our garden looking for ripe sunflower seeds because we don't see it the rest of the year. And as soon as they're ripe... Bam, there it's there. is. And it decapitates them all. It looks like World War Three has broken out. Seed everywhere in our neighbour's garden, on the fence, just everywhere, literally. Messiest thing ever. Yeah, the git. The git. Yeah, so that makes um, our best plans of growing our own seed. Uh, Well, they've just ruined it, haven't they? But there you are, that's squirrels for you. But let's talk about some of the plants that are looking good now because... The summer is just starting to go into autumn, but lots of things are coming into their prime. So a load of the late flowering prairie plants from North America, things like Rubecchia and Heleniums, Helianthus, all looking absolutely fantastic at the moment, flowering their socks off, really bright coloured a lot of them. So yeah, really good for for a herbaceous border. Um, Abelia is looking great. Um, It's one of the late flowering shrubs. Um, It's such an easy shrub to grow. I think people maybe... um possibly a bit snobby towards it maybe a little bit but it's quite i think common, it's beautiful but it's it's beautiful i think people get it wrong because it flowers so late so they prune it at the wrong time often cutting off all the flowers aren't you yeah exactly but talking of shrubs eliagnus is also looking good and eliagnus is often overlooked again because people keep it trimmed um, but it's got a fantastic flower the flower is really small it's an inconspicuous flower it's white but the scent is heavenly it's incredibly powerful. I can't remember if I said it on the podcast before, but once I was on a really disgusting, busy main road in Nottingham, you know, scent of petrol in the air. And 
there was a bank of Eliagnus and it was in flower and that overpowered the smell of the road. It was just, I had to go looking for this amazing scent and that's where it come from. Yeah. And it's, it's a really lovely floral scent as well. It's not, um, it's not too heavy. And um, yeah, there's a couple of varieties. Well, there's lots of varieties you can buy in the UK, but the two species we most often find are uh, the hybrid, which is cross ebingii, uh, but then also macrophylla, which is the one that we ha- happen to have in a lot of the gardens that we look after. As well as those shrubs, roses are very much in their second big flush. If you've kept uh, deadheading your roses throughout the summer, really looking fantastic, almost as good as they did in June. They would have carried on flowering over the season, but because it was really dry, certainly in some of the gardens we look after, they seem to take quite a lot of time off in the middle of the summer. But yeah. then we suddenly got a load of rain and the the flush of flowers is, is incredible. Yeah, they're looking great. And as well as that, there's obviously going into autumn, we're looking at fruit, aren't we? And hedgerows are looking pretty abundant at the moment for us and for the wildlife. And I've noticed that hawthorn, the, the haws, the fruits are, I don't know if they're bigger than normal, but I certainly think they look particularly juicy and beautiful and they're sort of glistening on sunny days yeah the same with pyrocanthra at the moment because the the berries have all swollen and either red or orange or yellow the shrubs are just glowing aren't they yeah, yeah they're looking their absolute best now including the one that we've uh, stolen the stolen landscape i don't know where it's planted i think it's behind the wall in our garden but it overhangs and it's currently covered in orange berries which hopefully the birds will find nice and tasty yeah, and the last one is a couple of wildflowers, which are also garden plants. Devil's Bit Scabious is looking really good. Late flower, and so is the Purple Loosestrife. Mm. Yeah, makes a stunning garden plant. It can be planted in a wide range of um, habitats. Um, often people grow it alongside ponds, um, but it also makes it good just planting the herbaceous border. Tall spikes of bright pink flowers and really loved by wildlife as well. Charming. Covered in bees. Yes, and so talking of bees, let's go on to our main topic for this episode. Yes, so today we are talking all about bees. And this is because we've been reading Jean Vernon's book, The Secret Life of Garden Bees, which we absolutely both loved to bits it was crammed full of tidbits of information that I certainly didn't know and we kept sharing it did you hear about this Ben it was amazing wasn't it yeah it was great we both actually read the full book this time around (laughs) Um, so yeah we learned a lot we did and for ourselves as gardeners we actually time the year by the bees we see don't we so for us spring has not arrived until the hairy footed flower bees are out yeah people always say what's your first you know they ask gardeners how do you know spring's coming around and that's it for us the hairy footed flower bees and now also we have the ivy bee, which is just emerging now, which sees autumn in. And we'll be talking a bit more about that later. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's ask a really simple question. What are bees? Ben, what are bees? What are bees? Well, there are 276 species of bee native to the UK made up of one honeybee, 25 bumblebees and 250 solitary bees. Bees are all insects and all insects have three pairs of legs and three body parts. So if you imagine a bee in your head, well, it's got a head. It's got a thorax, which is the middle section. Sometimes people call that the backpack. Uh, And then you have the abdomen, which, especially with bumblebees, 
is the the back end bit the bum the fuzzy bum yeah (laughs) now bees sit in a group of insects called the hymenoptera and that includes bees but it also includes all the wasps ants and sawflies and bees are thought to have evolved from meat-eating wasps around 100 million years ago. The story goes, and this is also in the book, that at some point a species worked out that pollen was very high in protein and much easier to catch than a fly. <laughs> I love that bit. Yeah, so basically bees are lazy wasps that couldn't be bothered to go out catching stuff <laughs> anymore. <laughs> it can actually be tricky discerning some bees from wasps as some of the bees actually are sort of coloured as wasps. But then there are also lots of bee-mimicking flies out there too, like the bee flies. And the canopid flies, which I was very much caught out by. Oh, yes. Which are actually black and yellow, aren't they? Mm, yeah, really um, easily deceived. Yeah, well, one of the ways you can tell bees apart from flies is by bees having two pairs of wings, where flies and hoverflies only have one. Um, but also the eyes of bees are on the side of their head, rather than the front so all fly eyes are on the front of the head and the thorax the middle segment of the bee is separated from the abdomen the bum by a clear waist it clearly comes in and then goes back out again which isn't the case in flies in flies they're just sort of one is stuck straight on the other yeah (laughs) yeah you do have to get a little bit up close and personal to see some of those differences but they are good indicators of uh, flies versus bees aren't they yeah Although all the bees are vegetarian, they actually have a huge range of lifestyles. Bumblebees are social, nesting in colonies made of queens, workers, which are all female, by the way, because obviously everyone knows the females work harder than the males. (laughs) Um, Moving on. And later in the season, the males, which are actually sent off to find a virgin queen to mate with, and that's their kind of main job. On that note, some of you might have actually found bumblebees asleep inside or hanging on the underside of your garden flowers. And I've certainly seen a lot of that this year. And if it's late on in the year, then it's very likely that individual is a male because once they're fully grown, they're essentially kicked out of the nest, never allowed to return. As I said, they've got this one job to find a queen, mate with her. So they're just sort of roaming around, feeding, looking for a mate. And that's their their main job. Bumbling around. Bumbling around. The solitary bees, on the other hand, only produce males and females, no workers, and they either nest individually or in what we call aggregations of sometimes hundreds of individual nests. Males usually emerge a few weeks before the females, and they've been known to be so impatient to mate as to physically drag females out of their nests, which is just rude. Rude. <laughs> <laughs> as Jean puts it, solitary bees are actually the single mums of the bee world, with the males doing absolutely nothing to help after each mating. I'll save my comments. <laughs> you can imagine what they're going to be. Each egg is sealed into a chamber with a little cake of pollen and nectar. And I suppose as payback, solitary bees always lay female eggs at the back of the nest where they are safer than the males who are at the front. And there, they're essentially more prone to predation by things like woodpeckers. Yeah, male bees get a tough time, I think. They do. Do you think? What, being kicked out of the nest? Yeah, they get kicked out of the nest. They get shoved at the front where they all get eaten. The jury is out. You have one job. (laughs) (laughs) We should also mention the cuckoo bees. There are six cuckoo bumblebees in the UK, which take over the nests of a host, just like the bird. Cuckoo queens often resemble their hosts and they make their way inside of a nest in around April or May, having followed a queen of the host species while she's out foraging. Yeah, they literally hang around and wait till they spy a queen. Sneaky, very sneaky. 
And then once inside the nest, the cookie bee then kills or chases out the queen. She then lays her own eggs, which are tended to by the previous generation of the host's worker bees. So getting them to do all the work, she doesn't do very much at all. And cuckoo queens therefore only produce males and queens, relying completely on the host's workers for care of her own larvae. Yeah, for care and for the workers going out foraging to provide for the larvae as well. Exactly. Solitary bees have their own cuckoos too, though. In the UK, we have around 30 species of nomad bee. These can often be found in gardens amongst the nests of the Andrina mining bees, but they don't actually look like the bees that most of us would recognise. So you kind of need to know what you're looking out for to spot them. Yeah, I saw the photos in this book and I wouldn't know that that was a bee. No way. If I saw a, a nomad bee, I wouldn't have guessed it was in the bee. Well, we saw family. one back earlier this year. Can you remember? Maybe maybe I didn't show you the photo. I've actually seen nomad bee, but yeah, they look they do look more like wasps. Yeah, they've got a long, thin body, mm. haven't they? Yeah. Yeah, in fact, actually, generally true of a lot of the solitary bees, isn't it? And some of them just don't look like bees at all. No. Um, but as for food, a few good terms to introduce you to here. So we have monolectic, oligolectic and polylectic bees. Basically, monolectic only take floral resources from a single species of plant, oligolectic bees from a handful of species, and polylectic bees from a wide range of plants they'll take from whatever they find. And I say floral resources here because it's not just pollen that they're after. They're also after nectar, of course, as we know, but also plant oils. Yeah, that was something I learned from the book. That was interesting. Which species they choose will depend on the time that the bees are active, but also on basically what plants are available when the bees are out. But also their tongues, the size of which range from millimetres to centimetres in length. So long-tongued bees might go for things like foxgloves and comfrey, whereas short-tongued bees would go for lavenders and daisies, amongst many other species besides. But some have a trick up their sleeve, especially the short-tongued bumblebees, which take part in something called floral larceny or nectar robbing. And that's where they punch a hole in the side of a long-tubed flower. So it means they don't have to crawl in or they can't get to the nectary at the bottom with their tongue. So instead they punch a hole in the side, bypassing the tube and getting straight to the nectaries at the base. Actually, and other bees will then come in and use the hole that's been punched by... I think it's mostly the white and buff-tailed bumblebees that have the mandibles that are strong enough to do that. Yeah, yeah. So other bees have learned to come in and look for that hole. So... They're really intelligent species. Intelligent and sneaky. (laughs) Sneaky little robbers. Let's move now on to some individual bee species and then we'll talk about what you can plant in your gardens to actually help them out. But first, we want to talk about the honeybee. Now, warning, we are going to swear for the first time on this show. (gasps) (gasps) Shocking. So get ready, brace yourselves, because we're going to be talking about the honeybee bullshit machine. (gasps) shocking shocking potty mouth the honeybee bullshit machine is actually a phrase that is coined by professor jeff ollerton so as it isn't our phrase and it's okay to say it yeah and in fact it's actually scientific swearing because Uh, a professor came up with it even better he actually wrote the fantastic book on pollination that we did talk about in a previous episode he came up with this to rail against the idea that honeybees need saving Now think for a moment about anywhere you hear the phrase, save the bees. Occasionally, it might be accompanied by a picture of a bumblebee. But in the vast majority of cases, you will often see a photo or a cartoon of a honeybee, which gives the impression that they're endangered. Yeah, it's absolutely everywhere, isn't it? You know, if you see save the bees, if you see a picture of a bee, a poster, an advert online, wherever it is, 90% of the time is likely to be a honeybee. 
Well, most recently, companies like Marks and Spencer and also Year Valley spent millions on marketing campaigns championing their conservation work to save the bees by releasing millions of honeybees into the countryside. Yeah, they were really proud of it. And then Twitter went Went crazy, crazy. (laughs) absolutely crazy, because we follow, obviously, on Twitter, a load of ecologists and conservationists, and all of them were having a go at these companies. It's not just those, it's many other companies besides saying, have you actually talked to an ecologist? (laughs) Has anybody thought about this idea for a second? Yeah, and as as with any of these things, once something is out there in the public realm, it's really hard to claw it back yeah. <laughs> and to get the understanding actually out there, which is what Professor Jeff Alton is always trying to do. Yeah, so let's explain this a bit further. Basically, by any measure of being endangered, say loss of range or population size, honeybees, and here we're talking about the Western honeybee, Apis mellifera, they're actually doing extremely well. And they're doing well because humans have taken them all over the globe. There are at least now as many honeybees on the planet as there have ever been, if not more, because we use them as a farmed species. Now, there absolutely are threats to honeybees, real problems for commercial hives, things like varroa mite or colony collapse disorder. However, we should really see these as problems of monoculture in the same way that farmers worry about wheat rusts or you know, chicken farmers worry about avian flu, things like that. Basically, because we've got so many of these species globally, if a disease or a a pest travels throughout colonies around the world, then it makes a major problem. But the problem is because we have got so many hives in the first place. Well, they're essentially just a farmed species, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. I do have to make a short side note here to mention that there is actually a local subspecies of the honeybee, which is much darker and furrier actually, with different veinings on the wings. But it was thought that this subspecies, the native subspecies to the UK, had been lost. However, just last year, this is really recent, 50 colonies were found nesting in small tree cavities within the grounds of Blenheim Palace, near to where you grew up. Yeah, my neck of the woods. And these were not feral bees. So often people will see honeybees wild, but they're feral because they've come from a managed colony and then they've, they've just gone off. But these were not feral bees. They were colonies of the type of honeybee that would once have been found living wild across the country. But the local phenotype, the local subspecies of those, are not the type that people are keeping in a honeybee colony, you know, whether that's a a big operation or just somebody keeping them at home. So what this means is that setting up a hive of managed bees basically has nothing to do with saving the bees. Now, we've heard Jeff Ollerton, Dave Goulson, Gene Vernon, who wrote this book, talks about this as well. A a swathe of other academics give basically a, a variation on this example to explain. You don't save birds. You don't save, say, willow tits, for example, by keeping chickens. <laughs> I love that phrase. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it explains it perfectly. Mm-hmm. You know, we are talking about a managed species. You know, keeping chickens is not saving wild birds. Okay, so yes, if you want eggs, you need to keep chickens. If you want honey, you need honeybees. But you're not saving wild bees by keeping honeybees. However, things could actually be a little worse than that. There is a large and increasing body of evidence that, especially in urban environments in particular, a high density of honeybee colonies places negative pressure on wild bee populations. If you think about your local area at home, you've got X quantity of floral resources. You know, there's only so many plants, there's only so many flowers actually out there. And all those flowers, all that nectar and pollen, has to be shared amongst all the bees, all the wild bees, and also all the other pollinators that are out there. If somebody then starts a hive and their next door neighbour starts a hive and their next door neighbour starts a hive, then all of a sudden you've added tens of thousands of extra hungry honeybees to feed, which means that that pool of floral resources is now shared amongst many thousands of other mouths. 
we certainly get a lot of honeybees in our garden and we're really urban as well because yeah, you know, it's become a really popular thing to do, hasn't yep. it? Across allotments and whether you're rural or urban, you'll see honeybees. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Now, it, it is a controversial topic, this, because it's not clear at what density beekeepers actually become a problem. You know, if you are a beekeeper yourself, then there is a totally manageable level of honeybees within our environment. Again, they are native. There would have been honeybees around living perfectly in harmony with all the other bees that are native to the UK. But because, as Ellie says, it's become such a popular hobby, it might now be that the we're exceeding the carrying capacity, basically, for the amount of flora resources that are out there. So just to repeat, if you want delicious honey, yes, you need honeybees. If you want eggs, yes, you need chickens. But if you are a wildlife gardener and your aim is to protect wild bees, then beekeeping is not the way to go. No, and given the fact that the honeybee gets more than its fair share of press, we're actually going to put things right and talk about some of the hundreds of other species you could find buzzing around your gardens. Well, I say hundreds. We don't have all day. (laughs) Uh, We're just going to talk about 10. 10, yeah. (laughs) 10 of the 276. (laughs) Precisely. It's always the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? But we are going to do this in a series of bee head-to-heads or a sort of top trumps, as it were. Okay, so first category, we are doing the most hirsute bee. Yeah, hirsute means hairy, by the way. So if you ever see a plant with hirsuta or hirsutum in the Latin name, you know something about it because it is like to be hairy, like the hairy red hot poker, Nifophia hirsuta, for example. That's a very nice example. Thank you. Very nice. Okay, well, the way this is going to work, I've got two bees here. Ellie's going to pick heads or tails, and I'm going to decide which one is which, so... Pick heads or tails first. Heads. Heads, okay. So the top one is going to be heads and the bottom one is going to be tails. Oh, heads. So you've got the top one. This is great because this is my favourite bee of all time. In my corner, we have the hairy-footed flower bee or Anthophora plumipes. 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 Yeah, something like that. This is a sign that spring is in the air. The hairy-footed flower bees, they can actually emerge as early as February and they are fiends for feeding on lungwort or pulmonaria. Yes, indeed. Which we specifically put into our garden to feed the ones that were coming in looking really sad that we didn't have anything for them. <laughs> they do go for other things. They go for primroses as well, don't they? They do. They left ours alone. So they, I think next year they're going to be happy with their lungwort. They nest in clay banks, old cob walls, and even in soft mortar. And the females look like small hairy black bumblebees, while the males have this hilarious Victorian-esque moustache in a sort of creamy apricot and they also have hairy legs as their name would suggest okay that's pretty cool that's pretty cool that's pretty hairy but on my side we have the fantastic pantaloon bee zazipoda hetypes now this bee is mainly restricted to the south of england it digs burrows deep into sandy soil actually up to about 60 centimeters deep and they can either nest individually or in one of these large aggregations as ellie explained But the female of this species is famous for having hind legs covered in extremely long, gold-coloured, pollen-collecting hairs, giving it the appearance of wearing a rather chic set of golden pantaloons. It is a very, very sexy bee. Who's hairiest? 
That's what we want to know. Yours is hairiest, but the males of the hairy-footed flower bee use their hairs to stroke the eyes of the females while they're courting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But mine wears gold trousers. Oh, no, but the stroking. She goes into a sort of trance. She loves those hairy feet so much. <laughs> it's amazing to watch. Springwatch did a piece on this, didn't they? Yeah, this year? yeah they and did this it's year. It's brilliant. Well, we need a winner. Who's deciding? Me. I win. <laughs> <laughs> I think the topic is hairiest, and mine are the hairiest. We needed to set up a And I'm the hairiest poll. one of the two of us, so... This you know. is not a fair game, Okay, ben. moving on, next topic. <laughs> okay, so the next one is biggest bumblebee tongue. So I'm going to pick one. Ooh, tails. So that means you've got number one. Okay, so number one is the garden bumblebee, or Bombus hortorum. This is a widespread bumblebee, and it's a really common garden visitor it actually does have one of the longest tongues of our bumblebees at around 1.5 centimetres long. Some of them have been measured at two centimetres. 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 There is a huge tongue. It kind of, they fold it up and it, you sometimes can see it actually with it extended if it's just about to enter a flower and it's almost as long as the bee, if not longer. It's amazing. They, because of this long tongue, prefer the longer tube flowers like foxgloves or penstemon or comfrey, as well as salvias and many plants in the pea and nettle families. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Well, I think you're going to win this one. <laughs> <laughs> the longest bumblebee tongue because I have the early bumblebee, Bombus pretorum. Now, strongly associated with gardens and woodland habitats, the early bumblebee likes open flowers like cranesbill and blackberries, but also compound daisy-like flowers, including dandelions and thistles. They will also make use of nectar-robbing holes made by these buff and white-tailed bumblebees to access longer-tubed flowers because they refuse to let their short tongues, which are only around six millimetres wow. long, leave them short-changed when it comes to nectar. A quarter of the length of yeah, the longest Yeah, OK. Way. All I right, win. you win. You yes. win. Okay, so it's not totally rigged game then. No. <laughs> okay, what's the next category? This one is the least adventurous eater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fussy. The fussiest bee. Right, you pick heads or tails. I'm going to go with heads again. Tails, so you've got the top one, I've got the bottom one. Top one is the ivy bee, Colites hederae. This is actually a new arrival and it was first spotted in Dorset in 2001 and it's now rapidly spreading north. So I think there's records in Yorkshire, County Durham and Cumbria. So it's moving very far north, actually. This is a fussy eater. However, it was originally thought that this species was monolectic, only taking the pollen from ivy. New research has actually shown that, in fact, it would take pollen from eryngium and from heathers and also many species from the aster family. That's the daisy family. So now ivy bees are known to actually be polylectic, which means they take from a range of plants. However, they do still have a penchant for ivy. Mm, very nice. My turn. I'm going with the yellow loosestrife bee, Macropis europaea. Now, this is a fairly rare bee, um, but it can be found in gardens if you grow yellow loosestrife, various varieties of which are known as garden plants, on which... It is truly monolectic, so that means it only takes from one type of plant. And of course, because it's a specialist on that species, then the yellow loosestrife bee is one of the main pollinators of yellow loosestrife. However, it's not actually the nectar that the bee is after. Rather, it collects floral oils to mix with pollen for its young. And these oils are secreted by the plant through special pores called trichome eleophores. 
And the cells in which the female lays her eggs are lined with this oil, which makes a sort of waterproof wax-like substance. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's a good one. And I sadly think you've won. Yeah, least adventurous eater. Mine eats only one type of plant. Well done, I suppose. 2-1 to me. (laughs) Okay, bumblebee nest size next. I'm going to go with heads again. Heads. Okay, I'm going to say the no, the bottom one is heads. Me first then. I've got the buff-tailed bumblebee, Bombus terrestris. Now, one of the most common garden visitors, buff-tailed bumblebees, can be found year-round in clement weather as it's one of the species that can have a second colony over mild winters. And people often ask us, you know, is it normal for bumblebees to be out? Well, yes, it is if it's a mild winter. Increasingly so, with climate change, obviously. Yeah, and there's sad. quite a few scientific reports coming out of looking at um, bumblebee nests down in London in particular, which also has the heat island effect on top you know, finding more species of bumblebee actually having these second nests or in fact just continuing the nest all the way through the year. Females of the buff-tailed bumblebee emerge in February, so lots of early flowering plants are really important for it. They nest in old vole and mouse holes underground and they have colonies that peak at around 400 bees. Which leaves me with the common cardabee or Bombus pascorum. Now this is the most likely of the four carda bumblebees to be found in gardens and it's really distinctive because of its ginger hair. It's very, very sweet. We've got loads in our garden. These bees usually nest at ground level in either tusky grass or in leaf litter. And they're famous for forming and covering the nests with moss and dry grass. This is actually the species that we found in a compost heap recently. Yes, which I accidentally dug up. I wasn't going to bring that up again, Ben. <laughs> I'm not trying to make you feel too guilty. We did. You did save it. I saved it. Yes, I saved it. The queens of the common cardabee start to emerge from March and nests can still be active in as late as October, but they only contain a, about 60 to 150 bees. Yes. Ah. Okay. Winner. 400 versus 150. You know I'm a bad loser, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> they might be crying on air. <laughs> just gonna, you're going to be staring at me intently while I do the rest of the show. <laughs> That's what I do all the time, Ben. <laughs> Okay, last one. We are going for the oddest bee. Oh. Okay, you can pick heads or tails again for this one. Tails. There we go. So you can go first. Introducing the snail nester bee or Osmia bicolor. As seen this year on Springwatch, the female snail nester bee, otherwise known as the Thatcher bee, makes her nest in empty snail shells. This is so damn cool. She creates a series of sealed chambers, each provided with a cake of nectar and pollen. She will then seal the shell with mashed up leaves. She then, if that wasn't already enough, weighs the shell down with rocks. So imagine a bee carrying little rocks through the air. I mean, that's amazing. And that is to keep it steady. And on top of that, she collects dry stems of grass with which to thatch over the top, ensuring that that shell is totally camouflaged into the undergrowth. Banging bee. Yeah, banging That bee. is a great bee. That is cool. How and are you going to beat that? And she does that multiple with multiple snail shells. Oh, she just keeps going all summer. Yeah. Incredible. Okay, that leaves me with the leaf cutter bee. And this is actually a group of bees rather than a single species. These are in the megachili group. I don't know if it's ever pronounced megachili or megachile. We shall never know. We shall never know. Somebody will tell us. Anyway, this group is made up of eight species in the UK. And many of us, as gardeners, will know well about the leafcutter bees because we'll find almost perfect semicircles cut out of the leaves of our garden plants. Particularly, they go for roses, but actually we're collecting at the moment a long list of the sort of um, plant leaves that they go for. Yeah, so I've got a very, very long list. Yeah, eventually we'll release that out to the public. 
Now, the female of this species makes her cells, a series of cells, down into some sort of a tube with the leaves as a lining, almost like if you think of like a cigar where the leaves are uh, layered and then it's all wrapped up. The, the individual cells look a bit like that. And each of these cells has an egg and a pollen nectar cake inside. She then seals the entire nesting hole with a further leafy bung and leaf cutters will either nest in natural cavities. They'll actually nest in old plant stems, things like broken bramble stems um, or teasel stems. But they're also partial to the solitary bee nests, which are found in garden centres as well. Yeah, I absolutely love seeing their cutouts in gardens. It's wonderful to see at perfect little semicircles. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I do love a leaf cutter bee. <laughs> yeah. I love a leaf cutter bee. We have them in our garden. But I'm going to have to give this one to you. Woohoo! Oddest bee. It is the oddest, but then you're more likely to get the leaf cutter in your garden. But yeah, I'll take this. I'll take that win. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let me just top this up. Okay. So, Mosa <laughs> Soup Bee, I got that. Hairiest Bee, Pantaloon Bee, Biggest Bumblebee Tongue. I think that was you, wasn't it? Yeah. Garden Bumblebee. So that's one all. Least Adventurous Eater. That was me. Yellow Loose Strife Bee. So that's 2 1 to me. Bumblebee Nest Size. That was you. Oh, that was me. 3 1 to me. Finishing with the oddest bee. Damn Three, it. 3 2 to Ben. No, I'll I'll be fine. (laughs) Yeah, well, you can distract yourself now. Take your mind off it by telling all of our listeners what we can actually do as gardeners for the bees. Yes, what can we do? This is the most important part, I'm sure, for lots of listeners. First of all, the usual advice is to put down the pesticide bottle. Put it down. Put it down, throw it away, never to be looked at again. Nearly all pesticides are actually broad spectrum and there's absolutely no place for them in a wildlife garden. Broad spectrum just means it kills everything. It kills everything. Yeah, it doesn't target the thing you're actually trying to kill. And second, something we always say to do, and that is to plant more plants. The motto of the podcast. We love it. Given there are 276 species of bee in the UK, each with its own special tastes and behaviour. And tongue size. And tongue size, importantly. The trick is therefore to plant a wide variety of species of plant with different flower sizes, different flower shape, different flower colour, although it has been shown that bees have a tendency to go for purple flowers. Generally, slightly. Very, very generally speaking. Yeah, because of course, you know, like we said with the tongue size, okay, so if you went, hey, I really, really want to plant loads of stuff for the garden bumblebee with its really long tongue, well, then you're going to miss out on encouraging the early bumblebees in so it's better just to have a really wide variety of stuff in your garden and who doesn't want that anyway because it's beautiful for us as well to having that having that diversity will really make your garden zing yeah people will be jealous and importantly as well it's timing so look at early and late flowering species because i think it's quite easy to find things that flower in the middle of the summer that's where people tend to go to the garden center but we are coming into the period of time where it's really important to continue providing as much pollen and nectar as possible so that species can make it through winter particularly all those queen bumbles in terms of the early flowers you could look at including some heathers or some Mahonia, possibly Daphne as well, which is obviously very extremely well-scented as well yeah, as the Mahonia. Mahonia. Yeah. The flowering current has been shown to be fabulous for bees. Uh, if, if you only have room for one thing, then I would recommend a flowering current. It produces an incredible amount of pollen and nectar. The, the whole shrub is humming in yeah. the sort of May time. 
Also, looking at the bulbs and lower plants, you could be looking at muscari, which is your grape hyacinths. Also, primulas, and of course, something bigger like a hawthorn, which yeah, provides for so many different plants, things. All the early blossom. Yeah, they're all great for bees. Yeah, mid-season, you could go for umbellifers, cow parsley and oleo, really good for that. You could go for vipers, bugloss, um, of course, shrubs like lilac. Again, really good. Lots of bang for your buck with a shrub. Herbaceous plants, eryngium, geraniums as well, and of course, roses on top of that. Yes, as long as they're not crammed too full with petals and you can actually see the stamens and anthers on the inside. That's right, open roses. Open roses. If you're looking at late season, so this is what we're in at the moment, then you might plant something like an echinacea or rudbeckia or helenium. Yeah, we all talked about They're all that flowering now, so yeah. The asters are also coming into their own, as well as the fantastic sedum or hylotelephium, to give it its current proper name. And of course, ivy, which is such an easy plant to look after. And it's so, so important for pollen and nectar at this time of year, not just for the ivy bee, but for many, many other pollinators as well. That's right. And a lot of the perennials that you have in your garden generally, you can give them the Chelsea chop. Yeah. And the Chelsea chop is you wait till Chelsea's on the telly and then you take some of your perennials and you cut them down by a third or a half and that just encourages them to flower later in the year you're basically just knocking them back for a month or so so that helps extend the season a bit later into the year we particularly do it with with sedum don't we yeah we do and in between all of those sort of three main seasons just plant as many plants you can cram into your garden yeah, we're just, it just really chucking is chucking some ideas at you from the book but exactly just anything anything just more plants And also, please don't be too tidy because bees do need flowers, yes, but they also need safe, undisturbed areas of your garden to nest in, as we've seen with things like the cardaby and its tussocky grass or in leaf litter. Try to leave places like the base of hedges or the back of sheds, make lots of wood piles and also leave some areas of grass undisturbed because all of those are really fantastic habitats for various species of bee. I know that the queen buff and whitetail bumblebees, for example, as our two biggest bees, will overwinter underground in loose soil, but they actually go for north-facing slopes. I didn't realise that. So you've got to think about orientation of these habitats as well, because different bees will prefer different locations around your garden. Yeah, and if you do find a nest, bees rarely sting. But if it's in a public place, then Jean suggests putting up a little sign to tell people that it's bees. Yeah. No, she's got a little, she's got a photo. Bee nest, leave alone, basically, and just telling people that they're harmless. Yeah, if you're listening to this, or even if you've read Jean's book, or if you already know a lot about bees, then it's the responsibility of all of us to educate as many people as we possibly can about these different things, so that people don't fear them. I think that's really important. We all do have this role to play. Now, there is, as usual, loads and loads more information in the book with way more on the science of how bees find and then use different floral resources, as well as many, many more plant ideas. So if you do want to know more, the book is called The Secret Life of Garden Bees. You can also head over to our website with links to the Bumblebee Conservation Trust website, the Bee, Wasp and Ants Recording Society, that's Bee Wars, and both of those have fact files on all the species that we've discussed yeah and we've also got some further information on the honeybees and some of the science around that in the show notes for the podcast and i've put in some links to different books id books that you can check out as well if you want to get more into iding your garden bees
before we move on to our final section, which is the native plant of the week, I just want to mention that a few of you have got in touch saying that you've tried to make a donation on our PayPal. However, the link was not working, which we weren't aware of. So thank you for letting us know. And just to let everyone know that that is now up and running. It's fixed. It's fixed. So thank you very much for trying to make a donation. Um, We hope that you're able to now. And yeah, thank you really in advance for helping this podcast continue. Yeah. And if you want to get in touch generally, you can send us an email to our new email address, which is hello at wildlifegardenpod.com. Oh, we're getting all professional. Oh, now wildlifegardenpod.com. Does that mean that there's a website coming? (laughs) Maybe. We'll talk about that another time. But yeah, if you want to send us an email, then there's a link. Um, Everything is in the show notes and how to contact us via Facebook and Twitter as well, which is the social media that we are on. So now Ben is going to take this month's native plant of the month. Go, Ben. This time we are talking about Nortia arvensis or the field scabious. Arvensis means fields or farmland, hence field scabious. And it is a plant that you can see all over the UK and it's often grown as a garden plant too. As a quick description, we are in the Dipsacaceae family today, which is the same family as Devil's Bit Scabious and Teasel as well. Field scabious is a herbaceous perennial, meaning it comes back year after year. And it has a deep tap root up to about one metre long. And this might help it in dry weather. And we've actually seen lots of reports, photos on Twitter and elsewhere of it growing well in meadows where everything else is brown and crispy in this year's drought. You'll often find the field scabious still having colour and flowering well. It grows to between 25 centimetres and a metre tall. And it has little cushions of lilac coloured flowers, but sometimes they can be pink or purple too. And we need an early botanical klaxon for this one. Yes. Botany. Because the whole flower head or inflorescence is actually known as a capitulum and it's comprised of up to 100 small individual flowers. So a capitulum or a capitula is a flower head. It's made up of all these little flowers crammed in together. Flowering starts around July and lasts until September with flowering stems developing from June onwards and a peak flowering time of around mid-August and into September with seed set occurring from August onwards. Basil leaves then remain over winter and they're mid-green, hairy and between about 15 and 30 centimetres long. Or her suit. Yeah, very nice. And the leaves coming from the stem rather than at the base are pinnate. And pinnate means that it's one long leaf, but it's made up of little leaflets arranged on opposite sides of a central midrib. Now, you might be wondering why it's called scabious. Well, according to the Doctrine of Signatures, and we've talked about this before, where the features of plants were supposed to resemble parts of the body they could be used to treat, the hairy stems of the plant were seen as similar in texture to scabby skin. Lovely. Lovely. Leading it to be used as a treatment for scabies, hence the scabious, as well as for mange and various itches that might afflict one's body. Other common names for the plant have included Blackamore's Beauty, Pins and Needles, Ladies' Pincushions, Bachelor's Buttons and Blue Bonnets. Bachelor's Buttons, I love that. I'd like these flower heads as buttons on my jacket, so it'd be very <laughs> lovely. Nortia ivensis is found throughout England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland, but it's increasingly scarce the further north you go into Scotland and in Western Ireland. 
It likes well-drained calcareous grasslands, and that's basically saying alkaline grasslands. But it's also found on dry hedge banks, uh, alongside field edges, on roadsides, and on waste ground as well. Generally, fairly dry soils between pH 7 and 9 seem to suit it wherever it is. Across Europe, it's quite widely distributed. Um, You can find it from Norway in the north and then south to northwestern Africa. And then it's got a distribution right the way through the north of Asia too. Like many of the plants we discussed, it's been naturalised in Canada in the United States. And it's even made it to Argentina and Chile, Iceland and New Zealand. Is it a problem in any of those or is it generally... They say that it's naturalised. I don't know whether it's a problem or not. But lots of the plants that are delightful wildflowers here are real pains in the bum for (laughs) for other countries i would say if you didn't find loads of stuff about how awful it is then let's assume it's actually okay yeah i hope so but always check if you are across the pond in britain it's really a lowland plant so it'll grow up to about 366 meters above sea level in europe it's been found up to a thousand meters the same in norway and in bosnia and herzegovina as well Now, one particular feature of the plant is that it doesn't like grazing pressure. So it will grow in lightly grazed meadows, but that helps to explain why it's often found in road verges, you know, undisturbed places, railway embankments, churchyards, places like that as well. So now you've got an idea of what the plant looks like, its history and where it grows. It's time to move on, of course, to the sexual antics of the field scabious. Field scabious is gynodioecious and pretandrous. I wonder if anybody out there can actually remember what all these things mean. I certainly can't. <laughs> well, that's good because we're going to remind each other now. So <laughs> we talked about gynodioecy before and it's where a species has some plants which are hermaphrodite. So they have both male and female flowers and some plants which are female. And protandry is when the male flowers emerge before the females. So that would only be on the hermaphrodite plants. Got it. Yeah, I knew that really. (laughs) (laughs) Hermaphrodite plants can pollinate themselves, but the seeds are less viable. I think I read it's somewhere around 20% less viable. Um, So it generally prefers to outcross. So that means it prefers to be pollinated and to pollinate a different plant rather than a bee landing on the male flowers and going on to the females within one plant. And the protandry helps with that. So the protandry, again, is when the male flowers open or the male organs are available before the female ones are so that basically means that a passing pollinator you know a bee say isn't going to land on the male flower and then immediately transfer pollen to the female flower within the same plant the flower heads are a capitula made up of up to 100 small flowers all crammed together and the capitula hermaphrodite plants are three to four centimeters in diameter whereas those of the female plants are only two to three centimeters in diameter so there's a bit of a difference in the size of the flowers there When pollinated, each flower produces a single fairly large seed uh, around five to six millimetres long with an aleosome at the base. A whatty-what? Aleosome. (laughs) Aleosome? I don't actually know how to pronounce that. I'm going to go with aleosome. Aleosome, yeah. Yeah. Now, an aleosome is a structure on the outside of a seed and it's made up of lipids, which is basically a a collection of fats and oils. And these are really sought after by ants. Um, So they have this, it's a little parcel of food, basically, on the outside of the seed, which the ants really go for, which encourages them to collect the seed up and disperse the seed across the country. 
you can't see it. My mouth is wide open. Is that what you also get on violets? Because ants disperse the seed of violets as well. Some seeds can have this uh, just as a parcel. It's It looks like a little hat, basically, on the seed, stuck yeah. on the top. Other seeds ha- are encased in sort of a, okay. a, an oily substance. So I don't know. So the eliasum is, the, is where you get the, the individual parcel. Wow, brilliant. Ants are great, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they do all the work for us, basically. <laughs> Plants on average produce around 520 seeds, but some individuals have been found to produce up to 2,860 seeds. Who counted that? <laughs> some poor postdoc, I would imagine. <laughs> in, a, in a basement. <laughs> yeah, in a always. basement. It's always in a basement. Right, now, is it good for wildlife? Well, the seeds given they're a fair size, are actually consumed by finches and linnets. We don't get many linnets in the middle of urban Nottingham, but you might do if you're more country way. Um, So if you can leave the head standing over the autumn and into the winter, then you might get birds coming to take those seeds. It's also a food source for several mammals, including roe deer. But the most value is to invertebrates. Now, in a study of Swedish meadows, 64% of all pollinator visits were made by butterflies. So it's really, really popular with butterflies. And then that's followed by bumblebee visits which made up 24 percent beetles nine percent and flies at 1.6 percent of visits going back to our main topic of the day though it even has its own specialist bee so this is one of the mining bees it's andrina hatofiana and it feeds exclusively on pollen from this plant and scabiosa columbaria which is another type of scabious you can find in gardens although it's quite locally distributed it has a fairly wide area in southern england and south wales where you can find this bee so it's in pockets pockets exactly Mm -hmm. yeah um and if you can find this species of bee you might be able to see the fact that it's been feeding on field scabious by the fact that the pollen it carries is salmon pink in color beautiful in fact one study calculated the critical pollen resource level for a typical bee nest of this bee and to be around 11 plants So if you are in the area where this bee can be found, again, links in the show notes, and you're trying to attract it in, then try and grow 11 plants or so of this particular species. As for other invertebrates, there are UK records for flower visits by seven species of beetle, including the brilliant thick-legged flower beetle, the bright green one with hefty legs. I love them. Absolutely love those beetles. As well as 25 species of butterfly and moth and 20 species of fly. And it's also the caterpillar food plant. So that's the larval food plant for 15 species of moth and butterfly, including the sadly declining marsh fritillary and the absolutely incredible narrow-bordered bee hawk moth. <laughs> that's one Which is a just name. a whole jumble of names <laughs> tacked onto this moth. And it's got this jumble of names because it looks like a collage basically of a bumblebee a clearwing moth if you've ever seen one of those and a hummingbird hawk moth all sort of just mashed together yeah it's, a, it's an incredible thing i really recommend looking it up finally now then on to how to grow it at home so field scabious hint is in the name it likes well-drained soils in full sun so the full sun like you might find in a field an open sort of aspect one study actually found it can grow in sh- shade but it has around 40 percent fewer flowers so not ideal for a shady situation but it is fully hardy and it's very tolerant of poor nutrition and exposure to wind so if you have a light sandy soil you know that gets quite dry and you're struggling with what to grow this is a great one to try but if you've got a heavy sort of acidic soil uh, probably one to give a miss now given it grows up to a metre tall it would be very happy it's part of a cottage garden that's often where we see it grown I mean it is a common garden plant and you can of course nestle it into a sort of herbaceous border or a mixed border 
You can grow it in a meadow. Obviously, it is a wildflower. But three things to keep in mind if you are going to do that. It doesn't like disturbance and it sets seed late. So if you're going to need to mow your meadow before August for whatever reason, then it won't have the opportunity to establish. You know, it's it's actually seeding from the middle of August onwards into the autumn. If you want it to get hold of in your meadow, then you're going to have to hold off the mowing until late September or even October to give it the best chance. Which is also great advice if you want to encourage lots of different insects that are flying now as well. Yeah, and we always recommend, of course, if you've got a meadow, try and leave a third of it actually standing all winter even because lots of the moths in particular and the butterflies will be nesting uh, away in the bottom of the grasses, at the bases of the grasses. It's also a poor coloniser though, so don't expect huge flushes of it in your meadow, uh, especially if your meadow's heavy on the grasses at the moment. First of all, get the grasses in check before you try to establish some, and you can do that either by seed or by plugs. Now, there aren't many cultivars for this plant, basically you're going to be growing the wild variety Um, but it's dead easy to find in both garden centers and in wildflower suppliers as potted plants as plugs or as seed to sow your own optimum conditions for germination are at 20 degrees c after 60 days of cold stratification now the cold stratification means that a lot of seeds need cold weather to break dormancy in the seed they've actually got it could be a chemical or a physical dormancy in the seed and they rely on that cold weather to break that down before they germinate the following spring so given that in nature you know it it sets its seed late uh, i suppose basically it would naturally drop its seed in autumn it would be chilled over the winter and then it would germinate when the the soil warms up later in the spring so if you wanted to grow it at home, um, then I'd buy some seed about now because the seed will be fresh if you're getting it from a wildflower supplier. Um, you might want to then keep it in the fridge for a couple of weeks to give it that cold stratification and then sow it into a tray or a pot of seed compost and just keep moist and tucked away until the spring when you should see germination. And once it has germinated, prick out into individual pots once you see the first true seed leaves. Brilliant. Well, I hope all of that was really helpful to all of you home wildlife gardeners and that you've been inspired to read Jean Vernon's book yourselves or go out and investigate what bees you have in your own gardens or both. Yeah, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, talk to us through Facebook or Twitter or via our email address, which is hello at wildlifegardenpod.com. If you would like to donate to the podcast, then head over to our show notes where you'll find the link to that and also links to all the other information that we've talked about in today's episode so until the next time keep exploring your gardens bye bye bye